everyone. My name is William Parody. I'll be doing the Bible reading today, John 9, 1 through 17. Let's begin. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work with the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Thank you very much, Will. Well read, articulate, upright. You're going places, young man. What a straightforward testimony from the man who was once blind. He said, all I can tell you is, is that I was blind and now I see. A couple weeks back, we heard the story of John Newton, who had penned those um, incredible and most famous of words uh, for the hymn Amazing Grace that we just sang. And we remember the story of Newton who had uh, found himself in the slave trade, himself being treated like a slave early on, but eventually kind of saw that this is the way I can advance myself and make a career out of this and got drawn into that whole web of, of darkness and, and deceit and brutality and all those things. And he carried that burden with him as a man who knew the Lord, but wasn't yet uh, giving his allegiance to him, wasn't yet following him fully 
We remember from the story that after a time, he was so greatly conflicted by this and feeling the, the weight of having one foot in what he knew to be right and the other foot in what he knew to be wrong. He eventually gives his life to the Lord and went, and like the, the man that he was inspired by in this John, uh, nine passage, he says, all I can tell you is I once was blind, but now I see. The, the John Newton that you see before you, the John Newton who wants to inspire people with poetry and lyrics, is not the one that Jesus came to save. He is the one that Jesus did save and made new. This is echoing what we saw in John chapter 8, where Jesus said in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You remember we talked about the setting right on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles, that Jesus was saying these incredible words, these hopeful words, at the base of these giant candelabras, these torches that were lit throughout the week of the Feast of Booths. And so now that that fire is out, you could probably smell the charcoal. You could probably smell the remains of that lingering burning odor. And Jesus was making the point as this light that is man-made will go out. I will never go out. I am the light of the world. I am the eternal light. All of Jesus' miracles, including the one that he does here in chapter 9 for us, point to his deity. He does these things on the heels of making these statements or before making some of these other statements so that we connect the dots. If a man can receive physical sight coming from somebody who claims to be the eternal light, then maybe there's hope for us as well. The astute Jewish ear would have, or, or even eyes would have started to observe and say, something about this whole light and seeing things seems familiar. They might have hearkened back to Isaiah because the prophecy continues to drip with these, these indicators that the blind will see. And just a couple of examples in chapter 9, Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep, deep darkness, on them has light shone. Further into uh, his letter, he says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. And Isaiah kept pointing to this miracle. Was he talking about uh, only physical sight? Probably not. Maybe metaphoric, but, but still real sight because it is one of the healing of the spirit and of the soul. And so Jesus says, to prove to you that I am he that can bring that real sight, I'll show you right here. If I can heal this man's blindness, then you'll know that I can heal the blindness of the heart as well. The reality is that you and I will never have real sight. We won't be able to see things as they are in this world that we live in without first acknowledging that we were born blind. So we have a lot of ground to cover. The, uh, the goal here is to get through the entire chapter because it covers the whole story. And I'm going to skim through a little bit of what Will just read for us. And then as we get further into it, we'll read the text as it's written. But I wanted to, I, I want to extract this idea that you and I will never have real sight until we acknowledge our blindness. So much of this story hinges on whether or not you deny that you need Jesus healing or you willingly accept it and then walk in obedience in it. It's really that simple, all that's going on here in this story. 
So first, let me point out to us that real sight sees God at work. Now, already we can think that that's a challenge for us today because we're so scientific and we're so educated and we're so further in advancement in our society that it's difficult for the common person to acknowledge that God could be doing something great, something miraculous. It's not a given anymore that people believe in a miraculous God. But this is what Jesus uh, puts on display as the disciples are asking him a very common question. Maybe not worded the same way we would today, but they said, uh, Jesus, now think about this. They're not saying, hey, Jesus, this poor guy's suffering. What can we do to help him? That would be sort of the first compassionate step that we would take. Oh, this poor guy, knowing that Jesus has done some incredible things. Hey, do you think we can do something for this guy? He's been begging here for years. They have a lot to learn in this idea of, of living out their, their uh, newfound discipleship in Jesus. And they want to, they, they, instead they want to use them as exhibit A. Jesus, we have some questions and we're going to prop up this poor dude here. So let's talk about him in his presence as a, as a, as a Sunday school lesson here. So Jesus, answer us this question. Who sinned? Whose fault is this? Did he do something? Did his parents do something? In other words, why do we have to uh, experience these kinds of maladies in life? Why do we have this kind of suffering in life? Is that not a very modern question for us today? I, I would believe in God if you could answer me the question, if God is true, if he's real, or if he's good, why would he allow suffering and evil in the world? It's the most common objection that those who are not willing to follow Christ have. I'm, I'm all for the do-gooding of Jesus and the example that he makes and all this kind of stuff, but I can't believe that God would be both good and, uh, and, and present in life knowing all that we're suffering with and dealing with. How could he allow such things? The disciples are asking a question that so many of us have asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? And it's part of the Hebrew tradition even to think that if you're born with something right out of the gate, this wasn't a blindness that occurred to him later. If you're born with something right out of the gate, then it's possible you even sinned in the womb. That's part of their explanation. So we have to have a reason for this, Jesus. So explain to us. Now, if we're bringing that question into our times today, fortunately for you and me, the Bible tackles this. The Bible has a system of thought. It has, it has a theology that we can lean on to help explain some of these very difficult questions. We can say right out of the gate, well, we understand that the fall of mankind happened way at the beginning. God had prepared a perfect garden. He set two perfect people in it and said, enjoy. Let's have fellowship one with another and you just live in obedience, enjoy. That wasn't enough for us because we would have done the same thing if we were in Adam's shoes, bare feet. Um, we, he, would have, uh, he, he would have gone down that path anyway. You and I would have gone down that path anyway. It wasn't good enough for our free will and, and Adam violated the perfection that God had intended for mankind for all of eternity. And so we've been liking it to, uh, ever since we were introduced to Nicodemus in, in the, or, uh, in John chapter three, that we live kind of trapped in this dome atmosphere of the here and now. 
that we are stuck in this atmosphere while Jesus is introducing a kingdom of heaven and saying that the, the here and now can also be um, infused with the already and the not yet, that the kingdom of God is arriving and there's more to experience even after this world is done. We live in a fallen world that so many of the things that happen to us or around us are a part of the fact that mankind broke God's command. And so that sentence of death and suffering was then introduced to our entire way of life. And that is a part of living in this world. We also understand that part of our own sinful consequence or the consequence of other people's sins against us, there will be suffering that we have to endure. Sometimes it's a consequence of correction or it's a consequence of punishment. But either way, sometimes we bring certain sufferings on ourselves or we fall prey to the sufferings that others inflict on us. But fortunately for us, as a blessing, God tells us that he also uses suffering for his purpose in our lives. As we ask the question, Lord, why would this man be born blind? Why, who, who made this uh, a, a problem? Was it him? Was it his parents or anything? What is Jesus' first reaction is? He says, the, the, um, the punctuation, Kelly, I'm going to have you come up, uh, bring it up. I'm sorry, a little bit. Um, I want to go back to verse 3. This is Jesus' answer in verse 3. He says, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The point that he's going to make here in verse four, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. That thought could be carried through. That period that's added was a result of translation later. It can almost sound a little bit like this to get the true thrust of what Jesus is saying. It wasn't that this man was born uh, in sin or that his parents sinned. But so that you and I can get busy with the works of God, let's act on this right now. Does that make sense? So Jesus is saying, if we're going to, we being Father, Son, and Spirit, and the disciples that are following along and joining him with this, if we're going to make this right, we're going to get busy and do it now because there's a day coming where, where you'll be hindered from participating in this kind of thing. And that is the thrust of what Jesus is getting at here. It wasn't that this man sinned or his parents doesn't make them sinless. He's saying their sins, being born in their sins, didn't cause what's going on. That the Lord can use this for his purposes. And if we're going to see them, we're going to get busy and engage in it right now. So as we heard, he anoints the man's eyes with mud. And then he says, go, obey me now. There's been some speculation. Why spitting in the ground? Why, why mud? There's all kinds of thought out there as to what these things could be and what they represent. We don't know because the scripture doesn't tell us. But is Jesus, you know, mixing it with dirt to remind that he was, he's the one that created man out of the dust? Is he putting heavy mud on his eyes so he has to go do something to get it off and it causes him to action? He aids his next step of obedience. We don't know, but there's all kinds of reasons that could happen. But John thinks it's important to at least tell us the name of the water that he went to wash in. He says, go down to Siloam. This might sound familiar to us. Early on, as we were talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest went from one place to another to draw his water in a pitcher. And where did he get that water? from the place that means sent. 
So he could just be saying, go down there because I'm sending you to go do it and wanting to make that connection. It's a scent, uh, the water that was sent there that man named it after because of the way the water flowed in. But John seems to think that it's important that we know why it was called Siloam. As Jesus was sent here to be the light of the world, so he is sending the others to experience that same healing and that same eye-opening. You see, Jesus is saying all the suffering that happens when put in the hands of God can be made right, can be made purposeful. Even Paul echoes this when he is, is sharing the, the, one of the deepest cries of his heart to the Corinthian church. And he's saying, you know, I have this, this, uh, uh, um, this issue with my, my flesh. And we don't know exactly what it is. If he had a problem with his eye or his hand or something like that. He says, and I begged the Lord three times to have him remove it. I, I said to the Lord, I could do so much more for you if you'd take this out of my life. This hindrance is hindering my work for you. Paul says, I begged him three times to remove it. And the Lord's answer was, as we see in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in the weakness that you have on display. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Jesus is saying there is a point to the suffering that we go through. There is a reason why this man was here at the time that we were coming through. He doesn't explain to us all the reasons. Was he born this way because of other things? He said it wasn't because of the result of sin. And we are going to do something about it now so that you can see the works of God on full display so that the glory of God will be manifest. This is difficult for us because we reject the concept of suffering. We know it exists. We know that we all have to go through it to some degree. We know that life isn't always peachy. But when we experience it, when we feel it, when it washes up on our shore, we have a natural inclination to push it off, to back it off. I don't want this. Isn't there a pill for this? Isn't there a, a, a person that can take this from me? Isn't there an amount of money that will make this go away? There's all of these things that come into our life. And our first reaction is to how can I avoid this? And I don't say that to pick on us. I say that to relate. I sometimes fancy myself as someone that can endure the, 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 the worst of the world falling apart. And as soon as I get a backache or a headache, I'm like, this isn't fair. It's what we do. In our flesh, in our humanness, we resist, at least initially, the purpose that suffering might have in our life. So just very quickly, as we look at why is this something that could be redeemed by God? Why is this something that Jesus could use? For his glory, I think it would be important for us to be reminded of this. Chances are you are going through something now that you can't quite figure out. Chances are your close friend or family member or somebody that's close to you that you care about is going through things that you don't have the answers for, or you've been through it or will go through it. It's just part of the human experience. So what does the scripture say about this? First and foremost, I believe that suffering is allowed in our lives to equip us to help other people. When we were walking through 2 Corinthians last year, we understood this right out of the gate. Paul says that we are appealing to the God of all comfort because as he uh, uh, comforts us in our sufferings, what does that do? It equips us to be available for the next person who's also going to go through the crud of life. 
if you and I are untouched and untainted by suffering, we're like, oh, that's sad. I'm sorry you have to go through that. And there's no empathy. There's no relatability to it. And, and what Paul is saying is that the comfort that we've experienced through, born through our suffering, allows us to enter into it with other people. Also, it allows, uh, it strengthens us in order to endure more because until we're gone and out of here, it continues to come, right? And each time we go through it, it builds us stronger. It prepares us for the next round or the next bout with it. James says that we don't act like it's something weird. We don't act like it's something foreign. We anticipate it. And then he, then he kind of pokes us in the eyeball a little bit and says, and then we also count it all joy. Now, there's been some kind of misunderstanding that those that are following Christ love suffering and love hardship and they smile when it comes and that sort of thing. And there's no indication, there's no instruction in the scripture to be phony about it or to act like it doesn't hurt. But still joy, which is that deeper experience of completeness and trust in the Lord is to be present. Most of us could quote Romans 8, 28. We know it so well that we know that, that uh, for those who, ha- who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is Paul saying in this instance? He's, he's saying that nothing just happens to you and me. The, the things of this life are not just passive. We don't just, we don't just experience them because there's no purpose in it. No, they don't just happen to us. They happen for us. They happen for the God that we serve so that His glory could be seen and our good can be experienced. We also know that suffering can correct us. When our kids are little, we, um, can I say this in public? Uh, we, we inflict a little um, encouragement along the way to uh, provide for them a, an avoidance of worse pain to come down their way. If you aren't accustomed to doing that, those of you with little kids, I encourage it highly. There's no way the small household survives with nine kids coming through it if we didn't take these things seriously. And honestly, what we find is that if you work hard at it right out of the gate, you do it less and less and less as the kids get older because you've established an environment. What is God doing in the life of his people? He says that because you're a son, because you're a daughter, I love you and I'll come in and chasten you and correct you. I will allow suffering to have its perfect work in your life so that you can mature past this and not experience it so often. C.S. Lewis says that pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Quote that to your kids every time you have to intervene. Well, pain plants a flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Can we just get on with this already so I can get back to my Xbox? And also suffering produces God's glory. This is what we're seeing on display that this man can say, all I can tell you is I once was blind, but now I see. And there is no more powerful testimony of God's reality than a radically transformed life. I know many of you see how your, 
your teachers or your small group leader or the pastors that get up here and oh, I can't really be a witness. I can't talk like that. I don't know the Bible like they know it and all this kind of stuff. Please understand that the simplicity of this testimony that comes from a man healed, he sounds like a genius because he just cuts through all the, the crud. These, these guys are tripping over him and they're going, no, we need further explanation. We need you to really break it down for us. He goes, all I can tell you is that these didn't work before and now they do. And they couldn't argue and they tried. And they couldn't win because he had a, there were, he was this radically transformed person standing before him. They started doubting, is this even the right guy? Is this a case of mistaken identity? It was so different. And many of you are living a life today that is completely different than the one that you are living before you married Jesus and before you met Jesus. Married is a good metaphor for that too. And and because he did such an incredible radical transformation in your heart, you feel like, oh, I've got so much longer to go. But everybody else watching is like, this is not the same person. And that speaks volumes of the glory of God. That is an incredible testimony to his goodness. Don't limit your understanding of how God displays his own glory. It's not just in the obvious beautiful things. Because he's powerful enough to even use the fallenness of mankind to show off how capable he is at making all things new. It's up to you and I to be a willing vessel of that display. So before we move on, and we still have a lot to cover, and I still have time, a little bit, let me just ask a couple of questions at this juncture. Are you willing to embrace suffering if you knew it would drive you closer to the Lord? In other words, if you're, if someone were to say to you, it's about to get real in your life and get difficult and everything, but I can tell you on the other end of this, your relationship with the Lord will never be the same. You'll be drawn closer to him. Would that be worth it for you enough to be like, okay, I'm ready. I strap on the seatbelt and I'll go through it. In other words, is the desire to know the Lord strong enough in your life that if even the ingredients that get you there are uncomfortable, unpleasant, and even most of the time unwelcomed, would you then say, Lord, give me the faith to just accept this? You know, so often we're going to go through what we're going to go through anyway. Just putting our head in the sand doesn't make the problem go away, does it? But because of our flesh, we say, if I just act like it's not happening to me, if I resist the acceptance part of my suffering, I feel like I can get through this easier. What could the Lord do if we just said, you know what, Lord, this is a season of my life. You're allowing it for a reason. Help me to lean on you even greater. The second question I would say pins back to what the disciples didn't do when they made this man exhibit A. Are you willing to alleviate someone else's suffering if it will drive them to God? What Jesus did was he intervened. He moved in to alleviate, and we'll see why here in a little bit. Are you willing to alleviate someone else's suffering? Do you take notice of that suffering? Do you try to um, enter into that suffering knowing that the Lord could be at, well, he will be at tremendous um, engagement with this person to draw them closer to him? Do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to help get them across that finish line? You see, real sight, the stuff that Jesus does when he heals us, sees God at work and looks for how the Lord is working even in the midst of suffering. Secondly, as we move further into this text, let's understand that real sight eludes the arrogant. 
Again, we have our friends, the Pharisees, on full display for us. Uh, I've been trying to give them a little bit of a pass as we've gone along. I've tried to be like, you know, humanly speaking, I can understand some of their confusion. It's just ugly when you get to this point. You're like, nah, they're dirtballs. Just the way it is. <laughs> Verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them again, look, I can finally see things. Won't you let me go to the beach? I want to see what creation looks like. I want to see my family's faces. No, 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 no. This shouldn't have happened today. We got to get to the bottom of this. We haven't finished our inquisition of you before you go on and enjoy your sight. Rather than celebrating the fact this man was healed, something amazing just took place. No, 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 let's get to the bottom of this. This isn't right. Something's fishy here. The Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes. I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, speaking of Jesus, is not from God. Why? Because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Again, they come back to the ritual. Again, they come back to their law. Remember, Jesus said, I'm not bound by your law. He doesn't keep the Sabbath, so he can't be from God. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. There's some quarreling going on. Perhaps Nicodemus is in this mix a little bit because he's starting to see who the Lord really is. And he's the one that initially said, no man can do what you do except he be from God. So in verse 17, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. That's a good start. That's not where he's going to stay. But you can see he's starting in the right place. His belief is like there's something unique about him. He did something incredible. Verse 18, so the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. They need other answers other than what's clearly true in front of them until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And he asked them and they asked him. Is this your son who was born, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents, you know, I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but they're going to stick him out to fend for himself, perhaps in a way of saying, look, he's cost us a lot already. We've been dealing with this whole condition all his life and all these sorts of things. He's not dragging us further into this. I don't mean to impugn them too much, but I think we can see what they're really afraid of here. His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, verse 21. But now, but how he sees, uh, we, we really don't know, uh, nor do we know who, uh, who even opened his eyes, like they hadn't heard by now. Ask him, he's of age. He'll speak for himself. John tells us why they're saying this. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, nah, talk to him about it. He's old enough. Listen, buddy, we love you. We're so glad that whatever's happened in your life, but we cannot lose our standing in the so I mean, your dad just got on the softball team. Um, you know, so many things are going well for us. We just got that parking space and everything. We're not. Yeah, we're, we've been praying for this forever. You know, our own flesh and blood can finally see it's, it's a miracle, but you know, we're not going that far with it. 
You see, if we really slow down and look at what's going on, this is what we do. We fear the impact that other people can make on our lives rather than acknowledging that God showed up and he did something amazing. In other words, we fear man, as the scripture would say, more than we fear what God can do and has done. When we see the disciples' reaction, I mean the uh, the Pharisees' reaction, when we see that they're digging their heels in even more and they're saying, this this can't be it, let's keep uh, uh, inquiring of other people, let's get other takes on this, it's because this idea of humility, what they're just accepting what is clearly taking place before them, is not a very de- desirable trait. We want to see the person who's large and in charge. We want to hear that, that, that people are successful and they're making fists of cash and all these things. We want to follow those people on Instagram and, and all that kind of stuff. This idea of just Jesus showed up, did something humbly. This man humbly receives the blessing and he says, I don't have a lot of eloquent words for you. I can just tell you that I was once blind and now I see. That's just not really desirable. These Pharisees are tripping over that saying, there's no way we're having our authority threatened by such a simple but profound act. Have you noticed here that Jesus is again doing this healing on the Sabbath? He's showing up on their territory. A total of seven times he's going to do miracles on the Sabbath. Not by accident, right? He knows what day it is. He knows the law. He knows the Mishnah. He knows all the rituals and the commentary that they put on the law that Moses gave. And those are the ones that they're, they're heeding to more than even the laws that were written down by Moses. The Mishnah basically is saying, we know that, Mo- that God gave the law through Moses, but, uh, it didn't fill in all the gaps for us, all the details. So we're going to try to comment on what we think God really meant by these things. And so it turns into things that means Jesus is violating those laws by spitting for one. Against the law on a Sabbath, can't do that. Kneading, like kneading dough. If you do this with your fingers in the mud, you're kneading. No, 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 we don't do that on the Sabbath. And you can't heal non-life-threatening illnesses or conditions on the Sabbath. We'll get to that tomorrow. We're not dealing with this today. So Jesus wipes out three of those things in one act, one simple act. Here's what the scriptures say. I'm going to switch translations on us here for just a a big section of this, and we're going to just read it through. This is what the, the dialogue continues. Let's pick up in verse 24, and this is from the Living Bible. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God, not to Jesus. And this is actually a good capturing of what's really going on in your scriptures. It might just say, give glory to God, and that's it. And we might think, oh, they just want him to praise God. But it's really more of a legal term, like testify that this was God and not somebody else. Give glory to God, not to Jesus, for we know Jesus is an evil person. Verse 25. This is what the man who is healed says. I don't know whether he's good or bad. The man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I see. But what did he do? They asked, how did he heal you? And he says, look, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you uh, perhaps want to become his disciples too? Now this guy's getting a little uh, aggressive, isn't he? It's like, I want to go see the trees and my family and stuff. 
tired of you guys. Perhaps you want to be his disciples too. So of course, that's going to get a reaction from them. They cursed him and said, no, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Why, why use Moses in this example other than Abraham? Because Moses gave the law. We're the ones who know the difference between right and wrong. Verse 29, we know God has spoken to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't know anything about him. And so this guy says this. Well, that's very strange. He can heal blind men, and yet you don't know anything about him? Well, God doesn't listen to evil men, but he is oh, he, he has open ears to those who worship him and do his will. Since the world began, there's never been anyone who could open the eyes of someone born blind. And that was actually a correct statement. That wasn't just hyperbole. If this man were not from God, he couldn't do it. He's gone on the offensive, this guy. Give a guy a little sight and he turns into an authority, right? And he's speaking to them. He's going, perhaps you want to be his disciples. And they say, we don't know anything about this guy. And he goes, well, how could you not know about somebody who could do something so amazing? And yet you say he's evil. How could somebody who's not from God do what he's done? They wanted to be disciples simply of Moses, and they were forgetting what Jesus had already said back in John 5. He says, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. In other words, I don't have to. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And we've said that belief in that instance should have looked like, well, I wonder where. Even if I'm not convinced yet, I'm open to what he means by Moses. Hey, would you show us what you mean by Moses wrote of me? And instead, they just instantly defend themselves. They defend their territory with false accusations, with lies, with misunderstandings, with forgetful memories and all these things. And they just react hostily to Jesus. Why? Because humility is not a desired trait, especially from these guys. But what we're seeing on display is that humility is what God utilizes in order to confound the wise. This man takes his argument from a major premise. He says, God doesn't hear sinners. Follows sort of this, this uh, argument of logic. And he says, so the, the, the minor premise in this is that God clearly heard this man. So where's your disconnection? What are we saying? Humility is the gateway to our usefulness for Christ. Now, please hear me when I say this, because there's so much that's full of our experience lately and what we see on social media and everything, but I believe this to my core. It's been something that's broken my heart for a long time now. Humility is the gateway to our usefulness for Christ, not our arrogant stances against those we look down on. We care about truth. We care about being right. We are not called to be passive when it comes to things that are true. But the way we communicate truth is as though we wrote it originally and as though we nail it perfectly every time. Who does that look like in this story? Can't be told otherwise. Know exactly what everyone else should do. And as we said a few weeks ago, thinking everyone else is just a bunch of idiots. 
What happens, though, is when we get real sight from Jesus, we start to focus more on the condition of our own hearts more than on the faults of others. Are there plenty of people who are acting like idiots? Yes. Are there plenty of things that are wrong about the world that we're living in? Absolutely. Does God's word have a lot to say about those things? Yes, it does. But until I start eating on a steady diet of what's wrong with me, I'm going to handle all of those problems wrongly, arrogantly, abrasively. Hughes says this, he says, it's so easy to focus on our piety or the changes in our habits of speech. But while we congratulate ourselves, we allow evil to spread unrestricted in our souls. You know, if you've found the same to be true, the more I walk through this Christian life, the further I get, the older and grayer I get, the more I realize how much Jesus had to save in me. That, that as I should be getting so much better at this thing, all I keep seeing is more of the depths of my depravity that Jesus had to intervene and give his salvation for me. Don't get me wrong. I have plenty of arrogance when I see what other people don't do as well as I think I do. But that's part of the maturing process is that we see more of the, the condition of the heart of the guy or the girl in the mirror. But real sight, what Jesus came to bring, eludes the arrogant. Last point is we try to wrap this up kind of on time. Real sight goes beyond the physical. We know how this story goes. Verse 33. Again, the man finishes his sentence. We're going to take a step back. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him. Remember what they believe about what happened in his womb in order for him to be born in this condition. He says, you were, they said, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? Do you hear the arrogance just dripping off these guys? Because you were born blind, we all know it was your fault. And you're now going to teach us just because you had something jar it free. And they cast him out. They de-synagogued him. They, they took his t-shirt from the softball team. They uh, took his parking space away. And his family now has this fear of like, oh no, they're coming for us next. So what does Jesus do? Jesus does what he always does. He heard that they cast him out and he found him. I, I almost want to put a period right after that. Because that's what Jesus does. He finds us. We have been cast out from so many things. We've cast ourselves out of things by our own mistakes and failures. We've been rejected and turned away from, from people that we wanted their approval and their love. And we've been left naked and alone. And Jesus comes and finds us because that's what a good shepherd does. He found him and he says, do you believe in the son of man? He answered and he says, uh, I will, for sure. Who is he? That I may believe in him. I want to just imagine, I haven't seen this in like The Chosen, if they've even covered this part yet or anything, but I just direct things in my brain once in a while and imagine all that we've seen of how Jesus celebrates this and and what he does with his creation and the fact that he enjoys restoration because that's who he is. He says to him, you've seen him. And I can almost picture that comma meaning it just lingers for a while. Dude, you've seen him. Think about that. Before today, we couldn't say that, could we? 
I would have said you've encountered him, but no, you've seen him and wanted to celebrate that. Isn't that amazing? You can see now. And it's he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. You see, salvation is clear to the blind. When you're blind and you're willing to acknowledge it, you can see salvation very, very clearly. Ever been around somebody that just knows that they've screwed up royally? You don't have to talk to them a lot about, you know, you're a sinner before a holy God. They're like, oh yeah, tell me. That's, forgetting it is the hardest part. When you're blind, you can see salvation. You just feel like it's just out of reach, but you know what it looks like. You recognize it. We see it played out here in this little paragraph. It requires divine initiative. Jesus is the one that initiates spiritual sight. When it's encountered, it responds in faith. It recognizes that Jesus is the one that brought it, and it results in worship. Now, conversely, if we jump down to verse 39, what we're going to see is that salvation is invisible to the seeing. Jesus says, because there are some that are listening with an earshot, he says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? So Jesus said to him, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. A couple of statements in here as we wrap this up, Jesus is saying for judgment, I came into this world and we might go, that doesn't sound consistent with what he said before. I didn't come to judge. He's made that statement. So is he contradicting himself? When salvation arrives, it's basically like saying the same sun that can melt the ice after a long cold winter, which is a welcome sign, is the same sun that can harden the clay. When righteousness arrives, when the positive come, it reveals the negative. When salvation comes, it reveals for those who did not receive it, it reveals judgment. So Jesus is saying, my, the mere presence I come to with righteousness and forgiveness is going to expose the judgment that others will receive for not following, for not believing. So when the Pharisees heard this, they're all uppity and they said, so are you saying we're also blind? Jesus said, no, because if you were, then you would humbly acknowledge that you can't see. And you would find forgiveness because you'd say, if you can give me sight, I'll take it. But no, you're saying, oh, no, we can see things pretty clearly. We don't need you. So you will remain in your guilt. You will go to your grave with these sins and lost for all of eternity, separated from a holy God. That kind of sight, if you will, receives judgment It refuses to acknowledge what's really true, what's going on with that person's condition. It rejects the spiritual sight that Jesus is offering and ultimately results in the doom that awaits. And this is when we go into John chapter 10, that Pastor Tom's going to help us get started in next week. We're going to see that what Jesus is doing is he is shepherding this man. You think about the abandonment that he's experienced. He's been begging all along. His own parents sell him out for the good parking space of the synagogue. And now the religious leaders, those that should be embracing him and celebrating with him that something incredible has happened in his life, said, uh, you got to go now. So Jesus being a good shepherd finds him, comforts him, leads him, feeds him, but also 
protects him. David Pallison said, God not only strengthens hearts in suffering, he destroys the powers of evil. The weak will be vindicated. Yes, some people intimidate, but they will be destroyed. Some sooner, some later, all sooner or later. We will never have real sight without first acknowledging our blindness and then humbly receiving the forgiveness, the healing that Jesus offers, and then saying, what will I do for you next? Where are you leading so that I can follow? That's what belief looks like. That's what real sight looks like in Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. Let's close our time in prayer as we uh, get ready to continue in song. Lord, thank you, God, for the sight that we have. May we never... Lord, rely on the blindness that we used to have, unable to see your hand at work, unable to see your your healing hand, your forgiveness in our lives, Lord. May we acknowledge you and you alone as the healer of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.